Blog Talk Radio. Well, it's supposed to be starting. There it goes. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. To participate in today's program, our guest call-in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here is your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Good to have you here. It is, after listening to it on my side, I hope it's coming through a little clearer there than it is on my side because it's, uh, we're doing this from Traverse City, Michigan, upper state, upstate, beautiful, pure Michigan. It is spectacular here. And uh, we're having some latency as it relates to when I press the button here and things start, the ads start working. But uh, anyway, it's good to have you all with us. It is August 8th. And we are, again, broadcasting live from the Traverse City Resort and Spa Facility. Spectacular. Flying in and over these lakes was so amazing. I, I got to tell you, it was, it was really great. So we've got the full lineup. Good to have you all here with us. And I want to say this podcast is, again, as we say at the beginning of every pod, podcast, every program, this podcast broadcast is created by mortgage professionals, and it's for mortgage professionals. We're the proud recipient of the Innovation Award by Progress and Lending. Thank them very much. The hot topic today is on millennials, and it's going to be really fascinating, especially when we consider how our aging workforce is out there. We need to absolutely add to the millennials. Uh, we have got to bring them into the workforce, and so it is really something that I have seen as a need, and there is a great article that our guest today, Robert England, published in the Mortgage Banking Magazine from July of 2016. If you have not picked up this magazine and read specifically this article, you should read this magazine. It's going away. This legendary magazine is going away after October. It's hard to believe that the NDA is discontinuing it. It's such a successful publication, but it's going away. They're replacing it with more of a digital type thing. Uh, it's at least what I understand. But this article is entitled Millennials Recast the American Dream. It's written by Robert Stowe, England, and we have him on the broadcast in the Hot Topics segment talking about all of it. Tremendous. I can't wait to get there, but we have a lot to cover before that. So I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors. We go out to ArchMI. They're here at the conference. Love their people. Love their representatives. They are the uh, creator of the new innovative RateStar program that allows you to get better rates pricing to your customers. Also, Motivity Solutions. We're going to be in Denver at the Motivity Users Conference here in a couple of weeks. Very excited about that. They're the leading business intelligence and technology uh, out there that provides real-time reporting, dashboards, and scorecards. We're going to have their KPI a little bit later on. Belma, the virtual electronic marketing assistant. They're a sponsor. Proud to have them here. They have the set, auto, set it and forget it auto campaigns, and they also create custom campaigns on the fly. Be sure to get a hold of Brent Emler at 208-854-7909 or email or check out the website, and his email address is there, Belma.com, B-E-L-M-A, stands for Virtual Electronic Marketing Assistant. Simplifile, man, I love these guys. These, I love all our sponsors. I love everyone that's part of this. But Simplifile, Nancy Allen and the team there do a great job of providing you real-time chat and electronic communications. They do a really interesting job of how they communicate, the tracking of that communication, 
And it's so important that you be able to have an audit trail when you're communicating with your settlement agent. Do you know how to do that? Do you know, uh, one like Andy Shaw always says, the profit actor says, do you know where your financials are? Do you know where your closing documents are? This is a tool that will help you accomplish just that. Check it out at simplifile.com. That is spelled S-I-M-P-L-I-F-I-L-E.com or call Nancy and her team at one 800 5657 D&H, moving your Moving the technology word forward, moving your technology forward. They've been in business for 140 years with 5,500 employees worldwide in 70 countries. They do a great job providing a lot of services. And this, this list of their services, i got a bank client in Texas that uh, works with them, and uh, they have got all these solutions just beyond the mortgage. So if you're a financial institution, you've really got some great holistic products, including consumer lending products. But their MortgageBot product is something you need to check out at MortgageBot.com. And then, or call them at 1 800 815 5592. Then, I want to say the Mortgage Collaborative, we got their conference coming up here at the, uh, in September. Excited to be a part of that. The last past president, five presidents of the NBA, Amy Gather, formed the Mortgage Collaborative. And it's really a networking opportunity where you get to meet the head people, the top people within the industry to be able to uh, interact with them in a more quiet social setting. Very exciting to have uh, them be a part of this and a sponsor of our program. Upcoming MBA events, of course, you've got the Michigan Mortgage Lenders Association, the MMLA State Annual Conference up here in Traverse City. It's going on right now. I speak on the topic of millennials tomorrow morning. Very excited about that. Then we have the Mortgage Collaborative Conference, August 20th to the 23rd. And if you haven't registered for, by the way, the Mortgage Collaborative Conference is in Denver at the Four Seasons Hotel. Check out the Mortgage Collaborative Conference at mortgagecollaborative.com. Uh, you can also, or the Mortgage Collaborative, I think is how it's actually on the website. Uh, if you have not registered for the annual MBA conference, I recommend you do so. I was shocked. I was a little late in getting registered, but I am. And uh, the hotels, the situation, they're fast booking up. It's, if you want to get a hotel at a discounted rate, you need to get registered. Make sure you make it there. We'll be doing a live broadcast from there. It'll be fun to have the mic set up and have Andy and Alice and everyone around sitting around the table with me. Uh, very excited to be doing that there. Let's see here. Joe Farr, we've got him dialed in. He's out attending a conference. It's good to have you with us, Joe, dialing in. I know you can't stay for the whole podcast, but uh, at least you're here now to give us an update of what's going on with Interest rates, and I was hearing some background noise, so I apologize. I muted everyone out. Now I got your mic on. Joe, what you got for us? What's the update? Well, I'm going to have to ask you where we stand right now. I can't see, I can't see the website well, it's, when I'm on the phone. Yeah, well, so that's where right. we? <laughs> we're sitting here just pretty close to par. It was, it was, yeah. it was a little volatility right there, very little, but then it popped up to 430 seconds. Now we're back to zero. Right now just ticked back to zero. So okay, good. for the day. Well, yeah, there's very little on the calendar today. Nothing really happened over the weekend, so it doesn't surprise me that we're having a um, you know a fairly quiet morning. Well, that that's just uh, not at all like what we had last week, though, is it? I mean, wow. last week we okay. saw we saw rates rise early as as yields in Japan and Europe uh, started rising. Uh, we saw them fall back down uh, after the Bank of England announced uh, more stimulus than what was expected. You know. A lot about what they announced was expected. The 25 basis point cut in rates was expected, but uh, they surprised investors a bit with announcing the additional purchases, bond purchases, 
uh, they have had a bond purchase program, but they added basically added another hundred billion or so U.S. dollar equivalent to their bond purchase program. Yeah. And the market really liked that. You know, anytime you see added demand, it's good for uh, good for mortgage rates. So we saw uh, rates improve following that announcement on Thursday. But then, uh, you know, we all know what happened on Friday. You know, it's good that we're seeing a, yeah. a, a good, strong labor market, but it was not good for mortgage rates. We fell that day, uh, uh, you know, 250,000 jobs uh, announced, 180 expected. Uh, average hourly earnings rose a little bit more than expected. And, um, you know, for the week, we wound up losing about 13, 30 seconds in price, uh, about five basis points in rate. Uh, other there was other economic data that came out, but you know at times economic data just doesn't seem to have an impact on mortgage markets. Even though it's yeah. important stuff like the ISM manufacturing and the servicing index both came out during the week and fell a little short of consensus. Uh, core PCE fell a little bit, which is nice to see. It's a you know a very direct effect on mortgage rates, but it stayed the same at 1.6 on an annualized basis. And uh, personal spending rose while personal income held steady. So uh, stocks had a good week last week. Sounds nice if you own a have a 401k. Uh, the Nasdaq, they both reached uh, uh, record closing highs. Wow! And as as much as we had on the calendar last week, we have very little this week. Uh, jolts nothing today, as I mentioned. Uh, uh, we got a treasury auction tomorrow. The, that's the three year. Then we got jolts on Wednesday, along with the ten year Treasury auction, which that can be uh, a market moving event. Not so much jolts, but the ten year. And then uh, PPI right. and retail sales comes out on Friday. Uh, retail sales should be an, an in- interesting number. It's been uh, running pretty hot lately, and um, you know, happy consumers or or housing buyers, and should be. Uh, an interesting read on on the the U.S. consumer. Uh, then lastly, on Thursday, I skip that. There's a 30-year Treasury auction. So again, not a whole lot on the calendar for the week. But uh, you know, you never know when things are going to move the market. It seems that we've had more movement coming off of non-scheduled economic events lately than than has been coming off of scheduled economic events. So it's always good to pay attention. It is, it is, and there's no better place to pay attention than at your website. And uh, really appreciate you being here, especially dialing in when you're out out traveling on business. So really great to have you here, Joe. Really appreciate it. Um, folks, if you have not signed up and are not using the MortgageU uh, service to find setting in top of all that's going on, you've got to get signed up. One of the most concise, to-the-point products out there. Joe, thank you so much. We're going to be right you're back welcome, after Dave. this break. You will be right back right after this break. break. Safe travels, Joe. Thank you. Economic uncertainty has created a tremendous amount of market volatility over the past few weeks. Intraday price changes seem the rule rather than the exception. Have you been surprised by a midday price change? Have you been frustrated as you locked the loan just ahead of a price movement? Found it difficult to explain to a customer why the rate you quoted is no longer available? MBS Quoline can eliminate these frustrations. MBS Quoline monitors Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and Ginny Mae mortgage-backed security prices in real time. It makes the information conveniently available on your desktop, smartphone, or by email or text message. These are the same prices used to set mortgage rates each morning and to issue midday price changes when significant movement occurs. With MBS Quoteline, you'll never be out of touch with the market, whether you're in the office or on the road. See for yourself what MBS Quoteline can do for you. Go to MBSQuoteline.com to start a risk-free two-week trial. MBSQuoteline.com. 
646-716-4972. The Lincoln on Lending Show is back. Here is your host, David Lincoln. It's good to have you here with us, everybody. We have got Paul Mallow dialed in on the line. It's good to have Paul dialing in and giving us an update of what's going on. And if you haven't checked out his website, be sure to do so, imfnews.com. Paul, good to have you here. Just bringing up your website and getting a chance to scan it. We're up here in pure Michigan at the Michigan Mortgage Lenders Conference. Alice and I are. It is gorgeous. It's cool. Man, so how are you doing, friend? Uh, good. We're, we're not quite roasting yet here in D.C., but uh, give it two days and we'll be back to 95 <laughs> and ugly. But uh, So enjoy the lake, uh, uh, lake effect there, so... Anyways, yeah, we're doing that. Yeah, it's good to have you with us, friend. Look at this. you got some good headlines here. A lot going on. Yeah, let's uh, let's take it from the top. Uh, you know, John Bancroft crunched the uh, second quarter uh, earnings numbers for the banks and non-banks, and uh, this this time we took a look at the banks. You know, the banks had decent mortgage profits, but they fell. They were down. Uh, servicing marks were part of that. Uh, the mid-sized banks fared much better. And, you know, this is, you know, an interesting trend. Uh, you know, when the servicing marks go away, production income is going to fall a little bit. Um, you know, that's the big question for this industry, the servicing marks and, and what they mean and, and how bad they're going to be. I should point out that PHH Mortgage uh, Reports earnings after the bell today will be interesting to see how much uh, they mark down their servicing portfolio and, and what happens to its stock price. And the big question for PHH, of course, is, you know, whether it's going to sell the company or the assets or whatever. So that's a continuing story. Uh, one M&A deal that is now official, TIAA, uh, they made it official this morning with an SEC filing. Yes, they're buying Everbank for roughly $2.5 billion. Everbank, you know, a lot of people know them. Um, they're down in Florida. They're a big player in the jumbo market, a little less so. Uh, I believe Tom Wynn left there late last year, and I think they weren't as, after Tom left, the word was that they weren't as aggressive on mortgages. But they're still a pretty good-sized player in, in the jumbo business. They're down in Florida. That's a good net, a branch network. Uh, and that's an interesting marriage uh, between TIAA and um, and a Thrift, essentially. That's what Everbank is, I believe. I think they still have that Thrift. Mm-hmm. Uh, some interesting regula- regulatory updates. FDIC is uh, proposing standards for oversight of third-party lending activities, and that includes uh, mortgage banking. The full story is uh, in, inside mortgage finance, so readers might want to check that out. Uh, the stress test came out this morning from the Federal Housing Finance Agency. Uh, they're required under Dodd-Frank to do a stress test of Fannie and Freddie since they have more than $10 billion in assets. And they said if a severe re- recession hits the United States, uh, Fannie and Freddie are going to need to draw something like $50 billion to $125 billion in money, <laughs> yeah, in money from the Treasury Department. Uh, you know, this is one of those economic uh, – you know, uh, noodling around, they have to do a calculation that they're required to do under the Dodd-Frank Act. No one that I know uh, believes that they're going to need immediate uh, assistance from the government. In fact, they keep earning money. The big question is, you know, their capital buffers falls to zero in 2018, and if they have a bad quarter, they're going to need to draw. Uh, I mean, you know, go go read the story, and, and we'll probably do a bigger story on that stress test. But again, it's an academic calculation that the Federal Housing Finance Agency has to do. But it, obviously, it's it's an eye-opening number. I'm not sure if any of the presidential candidates are going to, you know, seize on the report and, and make a statement about Fannie and Freddie. I have no idea. Uh, I mean, if anyone does, maybe Donald Trump. Well, who knows? Uh, Caliber, uh, you know, <laughs> listen, Cal, yeah. 
not, you know, Hillary's paying attention to some degree, I guess. But, uh, you know, Fannie and Freddie have not become yeah. a campaign issue yet, but maybe they'll get talked about in a, in a different forum. Uh, Caliber, you know, listen, they're a fast-growing non-bank. They're now in the top ten again, uh, and they hired away mm. Al Murad, who uh, was at Lone Depot, and he is now uh, with uh, Caliber, and he's their uh, senior vice president of consumer direct, effective immediately. Uh, so that's a wow. interesting hire. And in the short take sesh, uh, section, um, you know, we talk a little bit about the rumors floating around. Joe Garrett points out in his newsletter, uh, you know, he's been hearing the – he calls it an urban myth that Fannie and Freddie are going to double their net worth requirement to $5 million. You and I talked about this several weeks ago. Yes. Uh, I think you told me you were hearing that rumor. And, listen, we hear that rumor – you know, every other month we hear that rumor about Fannie and Freddie hiking mm-hmm. – or a fifth, I should say, because they're the regular. It's got to be their yep. call. You know, hiking yep. uh, that net worth minimum. I don't no. know what you're hearing out there, Dave. Do you still hear those rumors? You know what? They subsided a little bit. I, it's kind of like if someone's nervous about it, or if they got declined, then and they're mm. close. They're just not much over the two and a half million dollar net worth requirement. They they get more suspicious about it. But you know, right. it's interesting. So it'll be interesting. Yeah. So what what are you hearing on that again? Well, not much. I mean, I, I jumped on it because Joe Garrett, who runs Garrett McCauley, right. a consulting firm in, in California, right. uh, you know, he he brought it up. And, and I know you and I talked about it. Maybe it was a month ago. Yeah, uh, a month you know, ago, yeah. that's, yeah, uh, you know, you know, listen, there's plenty of fainting Freddie Seller services out there, and there's all sorts of nervousness about, uh, you know, liquidity and, uh, you know, what happens if one of them gets in trouble and you got to transfer the servicing. Uh, but I haven't heard anything lately, and um, I would guess yeah. they're not going to monkey with too much right now. Things are doing. I don't you know, think it's doing fine. It's just doing fine. There's no major losses. Uh, it's a political season, and I just think everything's status quo here until we get past November. Never sure. know. That's I think the story. Until we get past November, then we'll see after that. So. Yep. That's, all that's right. So that's that that's the long and short of it all. Good stuff. There's lots of great information here. It comes out every day. It's a must-read. There's a lot of you know, think there's a lot of must-reads, but this is one of the ones you do definitely must read. This one in Sam's article. So, uh, great job. Appreciate you so much for being a part of us, and uh, wish you were up here. Enjoy your. I uh, hope it doesn't get too hot there sure. in DC. Sure That's was. when it does. It gets muggy. It's miserable. Just miserable. So have a great one. Appreciate you so much. And we'll look forward to having you back next week, friend. All right. Let's run over to Alice Alvey. Alvey, Alice is here. She has her husband, Andy. We got a chance to sit down for dinner last night a little bit. It was so much fun to get the chance to – I would see Alice's conference, and she's like a sister to me. Uh, But, Andy, I don't get to see us often, but uh, really good to connect with her and her husband. So, Alice, what you got? Wait a minute. Got to turn on. I was hearing some background noise for a while from someone's mic, so I was muting everyone out trying to figure out who it was. But, Alice. Your mic is on. It's good to have you on. Hi, Dave. Thanks. Uh, yeah, it's fun to be here. As you said, it's beautiful up here. We have gorgeous weather, and, of course, we get the view of oh. the lake. So, um, anyway, it's it's the only time of year I actually get where everybody might be envious of the Michigan weather. I know the rest of the year we go with it. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> on our winter. So, yeah, we, anyway. Yeah. Um, anyway, so just for my quick update here, I want to make sure that everybody um, picks up on the fact that we've got the comment period open until October 18th for the No Before You Owe TRID changes that are out there. Now, um, I was talking with a group of compliance folks from Michigan um, earlier this uh, last week, 
And we all agreed that this proposal does not cover everything that we know needs to be covered. And the consensus is, even from the American Bankers Association, a, a group who were uh, part of our members were um, on the meetings with the ABA, they do feel that you can expand the need for other areas to be addressed when you comment. So sometimes when a proposal comes out and the entity lists the topics, they're really restricted to those topics. All they want to hear is your comments on those particular bullet points. In this case, we are recommending to folks go beyond those bullet points. Um, there are definitely areas that are not addressed that are still a problem for lenders. And uh, the ABA actually was going to, I'm trying to get my hands on one of their lists that actually lists what those items are. Um, so I can follow up with all of you. I think, Dave, we are going to try and schedule a program where we can just specifically talk about this particular proposed rule, the things that are missing, the things that are in it that you have to be aware of. Um, so I'll make sure I have it available for everyone then. But in the meantime, for those of you who know what those items are, you look at this 260-some-odd pages, you go, wait a minute, they didn't even bring up new construction in a meaningful way, or there are 10 questions still outstanding in terms of trying to close the black hole for um, issuing an LE right before a CD or having a change of circumstance after you've issued the CD. There are a lot of un unanswered questions, even in this proposal. So, yes, you should push the CFPB to respond to additional items. That's my first recommendation. So then the second component is um, the fact that in this, we are seeing that the realtors, interestingly enough, were publishing that, oh, you know, we got what we wanted as part of this rule, and lenders are going to have to give out the CD to realtors. That's not the case whatsoever. Um, there is some language in this that is talking a little bit about the fact that um, CFPB isn't necessarily, in from on their behalf, restricting it. Um, they're in this proposed rule. They're looking at potentially permitting that we could issue a redacted type closing disclosure, which title companies already have a version that they're giving to the realtors. You know, the realtors want the closing disclosure, um, and so we're, there are some components in this proposed rule where that will be discussed. But that doesn't change privacy, folks. You know, so anything that comes out of this proposed rule isn't going to change that as a lender. I'm probably not giving the realtor the CD with all the borrower's personal information on it. So uh, there's a lot to come out of that. It's, it's not as much of a win as I hear some people kind of talking about. So, again, you have to October 18th. Uh, Dave has, and I, we've talked about it. It'll either be next week's show or the week after where we'll go ahead and talk about that rule in a lot of detail so you all know how to comment on that. Um, also, Paul mentioned earlier about the FPIC. Uh, they have a comment period that was going to close September 12th. It's now extended to October 27th. And this is the FDIC's increased oversight of anybody who's doing third-party lenders. So, A, if you're regulated by FDIC, this applies to you. The second part, then, is expect that they will audit heavily if you're doing third-party lending. What does that mean? It means risk management systems, compliance management systems, Lots of things that we help folks with to make sure they've got their monitoring systems all in place uh, to manage and regulate their risk. Uh, last but not least, we are watching this House Bill 3700, Housing Opportunities and Modernization Act. Dave Trott, our House of Representatives Republican from Michigan, is here up here at the MMLA. And he reminded us, you know, everybody from Congress is at home right now for their summer break. They're only going to be back in September. And then in October, they all turn around and leave again to go try and get reelected. So 
don't expect a lot to happen on this bill or any other bill in the next couple of months. <laughs> so that's my legislative lack of update, lack of action, which is consistent with what we're used to. <laughs> from, yeah, the lack of action. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> uh, it's good to have you back, Allison. So glad to see you and your husband, and we're going to go up and enjoy some of Pure Michigan on Thursday, uh, Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon together, so it'll be fun. So check out the Facebook pictures. I'll be posting them like crazy because it's supposed to be a spectacular <laughs> lake we're going up to, Torch Lake. So, All right, Alice, so good. Appreciate it. Yeah, I think what I'm looking at next week looks like a distinct possibility, the best one uh, lined up. So I'm hoping to be able to cover this. There's so much going on, and we're getting a lot of requests for it. Appreciate it so much. Folks, we're going to be right back with Sam Garcia and then a couple words and then from sponsors and then the Profit Doctor. And then Robert England is on in the batter's box in the queue back there ready to jump on. We'll be right back after this brief break. If you have questions about mortgage regulations, Indicom Mortgage U has free answers. If you need ideas about how to reinvent your organization, Indicom Mortgage U will share great ideas. When you need help at any step of the loan process, give us a call or send an email. The Indicom team of experts have been helping mortgage players from origination through servicing for over 30 years. Your success is our focus. Whether it's a quick question or long-term support, portfolio, conventional, or government lending, it's a competitive market. So let Indicom Mortgage U give you the edge. So good to have you with us, everybody. And I'm turning on some microphones here, so I apologize as I'm getting a little bit used to that because normally I have everyone on. But, Sam, your mic is on. i got your headlines up here. Good to have you with us. This is Sam Garcia of Mortgage Daily, MortgageDaily.com. Check it out. Sam, what you got for us? Hey, David, good to be on the show. Glad to hear you're having a good time up there. Um, yeah, be glad when this earnings season's over, man. It's just been a killer. We we cover pretty much every player out there that publishes their uh, earnings reports, and we drill down into the uh, production and servicing. So uh, we're almost getting to the end of that season. Thank God. It was, it's been a rough one. But uh, our mortgage market index uh, was up 14% last week. Um, and that index, which mm. is based on rate lock activity at open close, increased as uh, interest rates declined. Um, refinances jumped by nearly a fifth to, from the prior week to the highest level since February. So uh, refinances took a nice bump up. But then, of course, that employment report that Joe mentioned uh, is going to have an impact on refis uh, as the rates go up a little bit. Um, the jobs report, of course, we cover the mortgage sector of that, and uh, non-bank mortgage jobs totaled 307000 in June. Uh, and that was way up from 301,100 a month earlier and 295,300 a year earlier. So really strong month for mortgages in addition to the overall uh, job market. Um, and, and of course, as you know, we using that BLS data that, uh, along with our in origination market share data, uh, we estimate that including jobs at financial institutions, there are 642,600 people working in the mortgage business last month, and that total included an estimated 276,100 mortgage jobs at banks. 59,600 home lending positions at credit unions, and then the 307,000 jobs at non-banks reported by BLS. So pretty what, good what's employment the number numbers. Again? What's that number again? 600? Oh, yeah, 642,600 pe people is what we estimate are working in the industry right now. 
Now, what would be really interesting is to know what the median age is. That would be fascinating. That would be really fascinating. I bet you it's well up in the 50s. Yeah, let's see what we can come up with, and I would agree with you. Um, In fact, when we look at, you know, just looking at how the face of mortgage lending has changed and the originators, and you think before the crisis how many people were in with hardly any experience, but they were good salespeople. And and now it's like uh, I noticed right after the crisis it seemed that the numbers we were getting were average of uh, at least 10 years or more uh, experience. So the quality of this workforce is way better than it had been in the past. One good outcome of the financial crisis, though we can't say uh, there's been that many, but – Anyway, so uh, moving on to the Mortgage Bankers Association, they changed the methodology of their mortgage credit availability index. Prior to that modification, the index had not moved higher for uh, eight months, um, and an increase on the index reflects credit easing while a decline indicates conditions are tightening. And since they made the modification to the index, it was only down for two consecutive months, and even more importantly, it increased in July, uh, up 1% from June, and an indication that mortgage credit conditions got a little bit easier uh, in July. So that's always good when you, you know, we can find that uh, it's a little bit easier to get a loan. Um, the American Bankruptcy Institute reported that there were uh, more than um, 58,000 consumer bankruptcies filed in July. That was the lowest number since January, and so far this year there have been about 437,000 consumer bankruptcies. Um, Reverse Market Insight put out some data that indicated 3,534 home equity conversion mortgages were endorsed in by uh, FHA in July. That was the lowest month since uh, August 2014. Um, Ginny May put out some operational data, uh, and that indicated that there were $47.3 billion in Ginny May uh, MBS issued in July. Um, and we maintained data back to January 2008 on Ginny, and that was the strongest month on record. So big month for Ginny May. Um, and Fannie Mae put out its earnings report for the second quarter, and the dividends that Fannie has paid since it was thrust into conservatorship back in 2008 total $151.4 billion. And given the $117.1 billion in cumulative draws that it took early on, taxpayers have netted so far $34 billion. Uh, that number over at Freddie Mac, which also reported its second quarter earnings, um, is uh, uh, $30 billion as far as what taxpayers have netted since uh, they've been addressed thrown into conservatorship. And one other story I wanted to mention was um, our reporter, Amy Brown, wrote that PennyMac uh, reported originations jumped 45% from the first quarter, uh, which brought them to $16.1 billion in total second quarter originations. And in the story, uh, she wrote that PennyMac expects to launch its wholesale lending program in mid-2017. So brokers should be yeah. happy to have another big option out there. Yeah, they're coming on stronger and stronger. Where did they stack in the overall order? Do you know off the top of your head where Penny Mac stacks up? Um, You know, if I'm not mistaken, they're give or take around number 10 in the country. I don't have that number here, but uh, yeah. They're they're pretty significant. Yeah. And what's more significant is... You know they weren't even around for uh, you know a decade ago, so they've really just gone from zero to hero in such a short time. And it was interesting because you know the uh, the chief of that company, of course, came from Countrywide, but he left well before they uh, had some of the issues that came up around the financial right. crisis. 
fascinating stuff, and you've got great data. That's what I like is you start hearing this. There's one reoccurring theme as you do your report, Sam. It's like say, we track the data in this, we track the data in that. This is a great resource for the mortgage lenders out there. I encourage you to sign up for this. Go to MortgageDaily.com. Sam Garcia, it's so good to have you here with us, my friend. Always love you dialing in and giving us a update on the headlines. So knowing that we're at 400-some thousand listeners and there's 600 out there, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. Please do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad hey, to hey, have I hope you your trip's successful this, there. Yeah, thank you so much. It's beautiful. It's, it's successful. It's cooler like this. That's wonderful. The welcome. It's good to have you here, friend, and look forward to having you back next week, Jeff. Thank you. All right. Enjoy the cool weather. You bet, friend. Will do. Folks, we have always out here Jim Jump, who's giving us. I ran into several of the ArchMI representatives out here. It's so much fun to have, connect with them. They're such a good group of people, and I want to get a hold of – I want Jim to jump on and talk about the uh, – Rate Star program here. So here's our pre pre recorded message from Jim Jump. Hi, David. Thanks for having me on, and we're happy to be a proud sponsor of the program. And today I'd like again to talk about Rate Star from Arch Mortgage Insurance. Rate Star is a revolutionary tool that allows mortgage originators to dynamically price mortgage insurance and match coverage to Archimize's most competitive rates. And that's important because it allows you to compete more effectively, qualify more borrowers, and of course close more loans. That's the power of RateStar. Originators from around the country are letting us know just how quick and easy RateStar is to use. And all you need is your NMLS number, and you can access RateStar anywhere, anytime, using multiple points of entry, including most LOS systems, product and pricing engines, and through our websites at archmi.com and archmicu.com for credit unions. And of course, it's available through our mobile app for smartphones and tablets. RateStar makes it easy to choose what type of mortgage insurance coverage your loan needs. You just touch, tap, and go. Quotes are delivered in seconds and represent our most competitive ArchMI rates based on the strength and quality of the loan application. And I have to tell you, David, getting a mortgage insurance quote has never been so powerful or so simple. And with that, I'll turn it back over to you and say thanks. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you so much, Jim, for bringing us that word. Again, check out Arts MIs for Race Star Program, and if you haven't called your local representative, get a hold of them. Great group of people. I mean that. They're fun to talk to, knowledgeable, and they're going to help you with your business. Someone else who can help you with your business is the Profit Doctor, and we've got him dialed in. Andy Shell, good to have you here with us. Oh, yeah, we got to go turn on that microphone thing. How about that? That's one of those things. That, yeah, these microphones, you got to turn them on turn them off. Right? And you're on. Hey, can you hear friend. me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear Hi, me now? <laughs> yep, got to hear your voice, Andy. Back in well, got, Texas. So. Yeah, it is. It's a little bit warm. It's going to be in the mid-90s again today, but we're used to it because that's what it's like in Texas in August. But you know what? In December and January, it will be 50, 60, sometimes 70, and it rarely ever freezes. So, you know, it's a little bit different. Yeah. But we like it. A little bit different than up here. Then. Yes, yes. We love it. Yeah. Dude, joy. So what you got for us today there, Prophet Doctor? Well, you know, Dave, first I want to just do – Paul Mall is, is an awesome reporter, just a great guy, as is Sam. But Paul continually gives a shameless plug to Joe Garrett. So I'm going to give a shameless plug to Corky Watts because they used to be oh, part yeah. of for years and years. And Corky has yeah. his own consulting company just like Joe does. But Corky Watts is out there with his company. And, and uh, if you need help, if you don't want to talk to Dave or me, call Corky or call Joe. But – there's lots yeah, of folks out there. That's, um, good. that's a great point. Yeah, that's you know, good. Paul can't help himself. Um, 
hey, Dave, I want to talk about something that happened on August the 4th. August the 4th doesn't mean anything to most people, but to servicers it means something because last week on the 4th is when the CFPB issued their update of their update of their amendment to RESPA, TILA, and what I call FEDSIPA. That, that's really the federal. What do you call the, it? Uh, what, yeah, what is it? <laughs> the Fair that's Debt cool. Collection Practices Act. Fair Debt Collection okay. Practices Act. That's the act that governs who you can call, when you can call. Can you call them at work? Can you call them at home? Can you call them at night? Can you wake them up in the middle of the night? So there's all kinds of rules that the FDCPA covers. And that was amended as well with this new update from the CFPB. So if you're a servicer or if you have a subservicer, you better go check this out. It's easy to find the information. It's on all the news sites to get the CFPB updated servicing rules. And there's a bunch of stuff in this, Dave. It's like 900 pages. Um, it's actually 901 pages. I, I, I went through it this weekend. And uh, there's three key points I want to hit on real quick just so we can get that covered for the folks that are dealing with Good. servicing. So the first one is used to be you could get a modification once and you're done, and if you go into default again, it's so sad. But now you can get mods over and over. So the new rule is you can modify again. Uh, also, in the old rules, there was a lot of confusion about if, if you had a family member that died and you inherited the house, you had to give the servicer you know, 150 pages of stuff five different times for them to finally deal with the successor and interest provisions. And so that's now been fixed. So now the successor and interest upon death of the borrower gives the successor and interest the same protection as the original borrower. And the one that I think is probably the most important to consumers and, and in being uh, respectful of the consumer's circumstances is that the new rule says that if you have a servicing transfer, the servicer who receives the, the transfer, if there's a pending modification, you cannot restart, you cannot go back to go. You have to keep proceeding with that modification request under the initial timeline established by the initial request submitted by the borrower to the previous servicer. So the reality of that is don't ever transfer a loan that has a pending modification mm. request because you're almost certainly going to mess up the timeline. But as the new servicer, you have to follow the original timeline from the borrower's modification request when it was submitted to the old servicer, even if you're the new servicer. So there's a bunch of other stuff, but those are the highlights. So there you go, Dave, CFPB's update of Respetila and the FDCPA that happened last week. Lots, Alice normally gets to cover of, this stuff, but I got to do this one, so thanks, Alice. Yeah, so a lot, there's a lot here for sure, tremendous amount of information, and uh, looking forward to uh, having Alice get into some of the deeper in, uh, in her update. Of course, she'll be contributing greatly as well. Appreciate you, Andy. Thanks so much for dialing in. Looking forward to having you part of the Hot Topic segment here with Robert Ingman right after the word from the KPI of the week from Motivity Solutions. Appreciate you, man. Stay tuned. Thanks, Dave. Looking forward to having you involved. You bet. Folks, KPI, you know what it stands for? Key Performance Indicator. And we have with us John Maynell. He's actually pre-recorded these, so I don't want to misrepresent that. He prepared a whole bunch of these, but John Maynell is going to be on. He's VP of Client Services for Motivity Solutions. Well, let's get in and find out what the, uh, the KPI of the week is for this week. John. 
Thanks very much, Dave. Always great to be here. And this week's key performance indicator focuses on one of Alice's favorite topics, namely the underwriting process. And the KPI is submitted to initial decision. This is generally measured in hours, and you can either use this to measure an entire department's average turn time or even individual underwriters. Very effective if you're using balanced multi-metric scorecards to fine-tune the behaviors of individual staff members. This measurement can also guide an organization to areas upstream from underwriting that contribute to this initial cycle time, like processing, setup, or even sales, to help ensure that people in those areas produce complete and accurate files that make the absolute best use of the underwriter's time. So the broad scope makes this a very powerful metric and shows yet again that what gets measured gets results. And with that, Dave, I will thank you again and turn it back to you. So true. What gets measured gets results is absolutely the case. Good to have you all with us, listeners. Again, we're broadcasting here from Michigan. It is so much fun doing this podcast from cool places like this and these wonderful events. Michigan Mortgage Lenders event was an excellent event. Wish you could be all up here enjoying this with us. Miss Jan Wetzel. It's just Miss Jan Wetzel being up here. She uh, She's retired now and living in Florida. But, uh, that's one of the ones I miss. But anyway, one of the people that's still out here doing a lot of great things for our industry, writing a lot, is a gentleman by the name of Robert Stowe England. And he is joining us on the podcast today. We're very excited to have him. And there's just so much to be talking about when it comes to millennials. I'll be giving a speech on that while we're there. Robert has been a freelance writer for years and has been writing for the NBA magazine. Gosh, Robert, how many years has it been now? You've been doing this for over a decade, have you not? Well, I actually started in 1988. Wow. So it's been, yes. I started the year before Janet became editor, and I've worked all during her term. Yeah, well, you've been you. One of the things, first of all, I'd welcome to the podcast, Robert. That's a clunky way to get you introduced, but I also want to say that you wrote a book that is a classic. It's the Black Box Casino: How Wall Street's Risk Shadow Banking Crashed, or they say, How Wall Street's Risky Shadow Banking Crashed the Global Finance System. It's a great book, and I understand that it is now being used in classrooms. It was so well-written, and there's so much historical stuff, which really is a signature of you. You research, research things like few do. And we're talking about the 8,000-word article. I'm sure you had probably closer to ten to 15,000 words you could have put into this thing. But from the July 2016 Mortgage Banking Magazine of Real Estate Finance, Janet Hewitt is the uh, publisher, the editor, and is, uh, just does a fabulous job. Uh, and just so sad to see this magazine going away after the October issue. But it's good to have you here with us and hope to help them be. In fact, we've got to get you and Janet on here before this thing all goes away and give her a tribute. She did such a fabulous job. It's good to have you here, Robert. Let's talk about this article a little bit. Millennials, it's a big, big topic. And I, you know, what's most interesting to me is the thing you start off on the first page of this article, well, it's still in the senior citizen print, in other words, the big, the big print part of the article, was is that now millennials have crossed over and exceeded the number of baby boomers alive on the planet. And uh, this happened last year. So that's a great place to start. That's pretty significant. Yes, they have now become Very. the largest generation in American history. But what's really interesting is they're falling behind so many generations, Robert, on what they're doing, specifically homeowners. You know, why, why is it that they're falling behind? Cover some of the highlights. 
Well, of course, they came of age at a time when um, the economy, you know, has we've had the housing bust, and then we've had the very slow recovery, and a lot of them stayed in school longer and, and didn't start work as soon as earlier generations. But now that many of them are working, they're earning less, so there are fewer job opportunities for them. In fact, uh, I learned through my research the median income of people under 35 is 20% lower now than it was 10 years ago for the same age group. That was one of the most startling uh, discoveries I made researching this. Well, that's, I wanted to start by going there. What is probably the most single biggest piece of information? I think we're actually going to get into it later on, but I want to toss the mic over uh, to Alice at this point, let her get in on this interview a bit. So, Alice? Hi. So, yes, uh, so along that same line, so, you know, in Detroit we've had a big comeback in the urban area but with the young millennials moving in, but they're renting. So we've got a fairly large segment of millennials want to prefer the urban centers, uh, does this contribute to the low homeownership rate? It doesn't because, of course, in most uh, urban areas, the cost of real estate is too high for millennials to afford. And typically, the millennials who are living in urban areas are the ones who are college graduates and are earning more than the um, median income that millennials make. But what millennials have done is revive the 50 largest cities in the United States, their downtown areas. Uh, they have already had a huge impact in that way as renters. And in some cities, they are homeowners also in, in the downtown area. Not all of them, but the ones where it is affordable. Well, hi, Robert. Welcome to the show. This is Andy. Thanks for being on and providing that explanation. I've, I've you know, as the parent of millennials, I've been watching their behavior and, um, Interested to hear your thoughts on the house size issue. Why, why is it that there's this apparent trend where millennials are attracted to smaller homes than the prior generations? Well, I would say two factors. One, that their income is less, so if they buy a home, it's going to be smaller if they find one that's affordable. But there's also a different uh, – there's a shift in what – uh, young people look for in life compared to earlier generations. And a lot of them prefer experience, gaining experiencing experiences, being part of a community, and being uh, close to their job. And all of these things uh, mean smaller, smaller homes. Uh, either they're living in an apartment or they are buying a smaller home if they, if they live in a near-in in a suburb. So they want to have the money left over to do things like travel and other things uh, more so than earlier generations. And with a smaller hmm. income, that means a smaller home. So if they prioritize the other activities over necessarily having a being house poor, so to speak, as my generation used to do. Um, so in thinking well, about that, oh, oh, go ahead, Robert. Well, I was just going to say that they, they saw, you know, the housing crash. And so they also tend to want to be conservative in their decisions, uh, financial decisions. And so buying a smaller house that they know they can afford is part of that uh, caution, cautionary uh, approach to life that they have. 
well, they just must be smarter than me because I lived through the 80s crash and still bought another house <laughs> that went down in value eventually. Um, so, Robert, let's talk about this whole impact that millennials have on the home buying and construction markets because it, it, it seems that that you're seeing an impact, but if they're not buying homes yet or they're buying homes later, then you know they're how are they impacting the market? How is this? How is their how is their behavior? Although they're big, they're a huge group. But t- tell me about how that's impacting the market. Well, the impact is on the front end or the front line, and that's why it's so big. Even though 17, only 17% of millennials actually have independent households and 8% own, own their own homes, and they're 28% of the population. If you look at who bought a home in the last 20, uh, 12 months, they are the largest market segment. So they're 35% of the people who bought a home in the last 12 months uh, were in the millennial age range. So they haven't made an overall mark, but on the front lines, they're big already. Hmm. Good point. Thanks, Robert. That's fascinating, the fact that 35% of all homes purchased. And then I think in even certain markets, I was looking at some data, even numbers like Boston, it's even higher than that. So uh, I'm not sure if I'm quoting that, but it it was up as high as 70-some percent in some. So it really depends on the demographics of the markets you're in. But let's talk about new construction that's being built for millennials, and uh, where do you see it going, and what are the things that you learned, and is it going to be more affordable for them? Are they building smaller houses? What's the whole deal with construction? Well, home construction, I mean, home builders are not building the share of uh, affordable homes that they used to. They are building move-up homes, and some millennials are buying those, by the way, that have waited longer to make their first home purchase. But whereas in the past, say, 30% of new homes were considered affordable, it's less than 20% now. Um, so, you know, it, it's, they're not building homes that millennials can afford, by and large, unless that's, they are they're in the older, older age range. If you look at, say, a, a millennial couple, each one has a college education, and they're in their 30s, and they're ready to have a family, you know, they're going to have a significant income. So they can buy, some of them are buying the move-up homes, and they waited uh, to do that rather than buy earlier. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm seeing so that. Alice? Well, so I was just going to say, so then the home builders, are are they falling, are they failing to build new homes then? I mean, so is it, if it's a move-up home, um, does that mean that the builders are accommodating millennials? How is that working? Are they being accused of failing to build properly for millennials? Or is that true? Well, um, I wouldn't put it quite that way. Um, they, home builders, have to build a home that will make a profit. And because the cost of building new homes has risen so high, they you know, there are many places where they cannot even build a $200,000 home, even though the, I, I think uh, affordable homes are generally more like $150,000. Um, they, you know, they can't afford to build them because they can't build them and make a profit. And this is from the cost of regulation, which I believe now is, is in like $80,000 a house, according to uh, a study by the National Association of Home Builders. 
So I wouldn't say that they don't want to build these houses. Um, you know, investors, of course, fund these uh, these new construction projects, both a home for homeowners and for uh, renters. And even investors ha- are are more interested now in investing in rental properties, according to one economist I talked to, because the pace of sales is so slow, it undermines the profitability of even a new construction that appears profitable at the beginning. If it takes too long to sell it, the cost of carrying it undermines the profitability. That's the case a lot in California right now. Well, so I'm going to switch switch gears here just a little bit. And so you suggest that the nation's homeownership rate looks to decline despite an outlook that millennial household formation is set to soar. Why is that? Well, there are quite a few factors. One of them is people have started, um, a lot of people want to live in the cities and they won't be able to afford to, to purchase in the city. So that reduces it in one respect. Incomes are lower than they were in the past. So a lot of them don't have the income to pay for the houses. And you see because of the, there's both a low inventory, but there's a low, low demand at the same time right now. But even in this, if the balance is still, uh, there's more demand than uh, inventory. And it's pushing up prices. It makes it harder for uh, millennials to afford either uh, rent, uh, buying a new home or, or an existing home. And then we have a shift in demographics. And the white non-Hispanic population is going to become a smaller percentage of the overall population. And that is a segment of the population with the highest uh, home ownership rates, which is 71%, I think. And with a higher share of minorities in the millennial generation, I think it's about 46%, uh, those segments that historically had lower uh, home ownership rates in the low 40s. So as this generation comes on, uh, if those same rates prevail, then the overall um, home ownership rate will decline. And the other thing, the constant delay of buying eventually means they don't buy. So if they're getting a job later, getting married later, getting, uh, having children later, and sometimes not marrying at all and not having any children, um, then it reduces the demand for housing and the people who will become homeowners. Well, that's really interesting, Robert. So, so let me ask you another question then. Are high levels of college debt, which we see often now, is this debt load slowing down millennials on their, you know, path to home ownership? Well, this is another factor that's holding them back because if you say compare now and ten years ago, you see that a higher percentage of graduates have college debt, like it rose from sixty-four to sixty-nine <clears> percent. <throat> the amount of debt they have is increased. And so, you know, having to pay that debt down with lower job opportunities, lower pay, it just makes it more difficult for them to become homeowners or even independent. We actually have the highest share of young people, people under 18 to 34, living at home in modern history when these data were collected. And that's another one of the statistics that I found quite alarming. This was found by Pew going over the American Consumer Survey from the Census Bureau. 32% 
of young people, 18 to 34, still live at home. And that's the highest percentage since the 1880s. And that's when they first started collecting wow. those data. Can, can I interject just a quick follow-on? I know we're running out of time. You know, when, when I was 18, my dad said, go to college or get out. And when you graduate from college, get out. And so come get your stuff. Were we too nice to our kids and being so open and letting them stay as long as they wanted? I mean, why is this happening now? Well, I think it's, you know, part of it is the the children are willing to stay. Children wanted to go. I mean, young people wanted to go out on their own. They're willing to stay at home uh, now, and they they the jobs are not out there, and they're not paying that much. So I think both young people and the parents are seeing this as, <clears throat> as a necessity or as a way to help uh, their uh, children prepare, you know, for the rest of their lives. A lot of times you see people staying at home, marrying later, and saving money to be able to start out with an independent uh, independent life. And they have to because of the financial uh, difficulty they face. Thanks, Robert. Yeah, and that's what, I, in fact, Andy, that's a great question because I, you ask yourself, are we being – too enabling as parents now. Andy, you and I have kids fairly close to the same age, and I'm turning 66 here in a few weeks, and I look at that. Are we doing too much? Is it look like enabling? And what I'm reading as I study your article and have done a lot more research, Pew Research, by the way, has got a phenomenal amount of information out there, excellent stuff, is it appears that everyone recognizes the importance of financial stability, and that is a key driving factor. The parents are saying, rather have you get out, but when you do get out, I want to make sure you stay out and stay in a solid foundation. And aging baby boomers are going, I need to have a place to live maybe myself as we get older because we didn't pray. So we'll help you now. You can help us later. I wonder if that's it's just fascinating dynamic. Any sense for that as we get ready to wrap this program up? Well, there is more, more multi-generational living, uh, if, that, that, you know, if that's what you're asking. Um, yeah, yeah. you know, parents are seeing the difficulties that um, their children have had. I mean, I mean, each situation is, of course, going to be different. Some children can go, some young people can go out and be on their own immediately, and that's fine. But, you know, parents want to see their um, sons and daughters succeed. And if this is, a, this is maybe the most difficult economic environment we've been in since the Great Depression, which none of us, uh, I, I believe, can live through. Um, right. So they, they're trying to be understanding, I would guess, and they do want uh, their, their uh, daughter, sons and daughters to succeed. Yeah, I think that's, that's my guess. Yeah. It, it seems to be that. Yeah. I'm going to wrap it up with this final question. It says, what then is the single factor that could alter the course of home ownership rates for, more, for millennials? I think if you saw a dramatic increase in incomes, uh, if we were suddenly yeah. to get the economy on track, the economy has been growing very slowly. If it were to really take off, it would really drive home ownership higher because there's huge pent-up demand. Um, and it would give the millennials the confidence to go out and uh, buy a house if, if they've been too hesitant so far. But just having the yeah. income, it's that, yeah. I think it, that's the number one thing. Number one factor. I think it's also interesting that you point out in this article that this generation, the millennial generation, 
is actually growing in size. You go, how can that be? Weren't they already born? What was there was there. And it's because, as you point out in this article, there's a lot of immigration within that age group, and they're looking for opportunity. So the millennial population is actually growing through immigration. I'd love to get your final thoughts on that. So we, that's literally last comment that we got to close the door on this podcast, but this program today. But your thoughts? Fascinating. Yes, there of the millennial generation will grow from continuing immigration, and a lot of immigration is younger people, and so they are facing more competition in a way for the jobs out there uh, as the time goes by, unless we see uh, some kind of boost in the economy. That's fascinating. This is a great article, folks. Eight thousand words go into this thing. I think it's more than that. That's the number I wrote down in here. It's well-written. It is well-researched. Everything Robert England writes is extremely well-researched. encourage you to go out and get his book. Uh, that is fascinating. Google it. There's a lot of great information. And then go back and read some of the other articles he's published there at the Mortgage Banking Magazine. It's just a wealth of stuff, and some of it is timeless. Robert, I want to say thank you so much for being a part of the broadcast today. The program today is really good to have you here. And uh, valuable information, and I'm just so grateful to have the privilege of gotten to know you and uh, looking forward to continuing that, uh, our relationship, and having you back with more and more articles and research that you're doing. Well, thank you very much. It's Good to have you. It's a pleasure for me, too. I really enjoyed it. It's always fun to have you, and we'll look forward to having you back. Again, folks, we've had as our guest Robert Stowe England, who wrote the article in the July publication of the Mortgage Banking Magazine, and the name of the article is absolutely a must-read. It's the article titled, Millennials Recast the American Dream. Lots of good stuff we couldn't even begin to touch on. it. I'll be talking about this here at the conference. For those of you that are here, be sure to attend my session tomorrow morning at 845. Good to have you with us, everybody. Appreciate you tuning in and telling others about it. We're going to work our best. To, I think it's going to work out for Alice to come back next week and uh, be our primary hot topic. Really give us an update on the regulatory side of everything that's going on. Appreciate you being here with us, everybody. Have a great rest of the week, and we'll see you back here next week. There we go. Finally getting it around. Man, it's getting low on these buttons today. This has been Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lincoln of Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Today's guests were Joe Farr from MBS Line, Andy Shell of Mortgage Banking Solutions, and Alice Alvey, President CMB of Mortgage U. Come by next week and thank you for listening.